Welcome to The Label Podcast, a show about disability, illness and difference. I'm Lucy. And I'm Alice. And that's Don't forget in this episode, I might swear, Lucy might cry, and you can check out details of the trigger warnings on our website. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Label Podcast with me, Alice, and my co-host, Lucy. Hello. Hi. Uh, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm feeling a little bit under the weather today, so I've got... Oh, yeah? Uh, oh, yeah, no. got got all my, my big lights are all off. I've got bed socks on and a hot water bottle and that's uh, mm. it's helping but I think I shall be curling up in bed for a little a little nap after this but yes it, yeah um, uh, the weather is a bit cold it's just yeah it's it uh, it's definitely feels like retreat and hide under the duvet season it's coming isn't it <laughs> <laughs> this episode is one of two uh special uh collaborative collaboration episodes that we are yes Mm, that we're doing with the National Autistic Society that we're really excited about and in a super professional fashion I keep getting the two confused um, <laughs> and being completely uncertain what we're talking about who we're talking to what day it is <laughs> all the things uh, Alice you talk about professionalism just before you pressed record on the uh, screen there my microphone fell out of its holder that's on the table <laughs> twice uh, yeah. And the guest is looking, looking at us like, what who are, who are these? <laughs> um, so, speaking of our guest, uh, I yes. would like to introduce you all to our guest this week. It is Melissa Simmons. Melissa, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Oh, I was expecting a, like, a round of applause, like, uh, <laughs> in the background. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, we... I, no, I was but, expecting more more than that, you know. Uh, well, we'll, it's okay, we'll, it's okay. We'll add it in post, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> uh, Adam, if you'd like to put some fanfare in, uh, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, Melissa, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, and what you're up to? Um, oh, gosh, it sounds like I'm doing a Tinder profile now. <laughs> um <laughs> I don't, I don't do Tinder, by the way. Not that I'm judging. It's just that I'm married, so I wouldn't be doing Tinder. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I, I think husbands tend to frown on that sort of thing, don't they? I know. What are they like? Eh? I know, right? Um, so, um... I, I met my husband, like, years and years and years You met your ago. husband in a living room, didn't you? I did, yeah. I, yeah. I have never done online dating. And there's a big part of me that's like, I'd really like to set up a yeah. Tinder profile just to see what, like what's going on and what all the fuss is about but I'd give it to no, I couldn't face the, like, yeah, no, no. face the rejection I no. couldn't face being on there for like six months and not having one like oh yeah no. it's a like or a swipe I couldn't cope with that so I'd be posting pictures <laughs> I would be posting pictures of myself from like 15 to 20 years ago when I was much younger and thinner so don't worry about it <laughs> Well, I'm I'm Melissa. I'm um, 43. 
I um, work for Voluntary Action Sheffield as the Adult Autism Coordinator. I created something called the Sheffield Autism Partnership Network. I'm based in Sheffield, by the way. And um, I'm autistic. And I realised I was autistic in my um, mid-30s and um, received a diagnosis when I was, I think I was 35 or 36. So, um, yeah, so for 30 plus years, I've done something called MASK. And, um, you know, I'm paying the price for that now. So I think... I think that's me in a nutshell. You know, I'm also married um, and um, I have two kids as well. Sounds like you, that, that's all, all the basic information other than sort of your PIN number and stuff. So I think, <laughs> I think we, don't need your, we don't need your PIN number. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> no. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I am hearing, the world is hearing increasingly about uh, neurodiverse adults who are mm. getting diagnosed in adulthood. Um, what was it that sort of made you go, I want to explore this, I want to look at, at getting a diagnosis? Lots of mums are diagnosed after their children are. So okay. in that regard, um, I'm not dissimilar to lots of autistic okay. mums that I know. Um, mm. So my son was diagnosed when he was four and he's 17 now. So he's diagnosed mm -hmm. at four. And um, we used to as attend a weekly um, charity called um, Asperger's Children and Carers Together. But they, they're changing their name to Autism Children and Carers Together. But it, they, yes. the, the, um, it's ACT. We just call them ACT, which is mm -hmm. A-double-C-T. And um, I went every week, and it was the only space where my son could just and that was really nice for me and um but I started to meet little girls there who were they were also autistic and it wasn't until then I realized girls could be autistic because I just thought it was something that happened to boys um I started to meet um girls that were also autistic and started to see it in my daughter because my daughter and son are so completely different. Mm. Um, my son's very quiet and loves his own company. And my daughter's a whirlwind of energy and opinions. And um, she's incredibly argumentative and militant. And so she was just so <laughs> completely different that I, I didn't understand that autism could look like that. Mm. So, um, so I then started to see it in my daughter and in seeing it in my daughter I saw it in myself as well mm. and so my daughter who's 13 now she she received her diagnosis at age six which I felt really guilty about because I thought oh gosh she struggled for like six years and I felt guilty about my son struggling for four um and um I started to see it in myself and um went I went to my GP thankfully I had a GP who trusted me um, so I didn't have to list a million reasons why I thought I was autistic, mm. which I hear yeah. a lot of people have to do. And you just put on the spot by a GP, well, why do you think you're autistic? Well, you know, how do you really answer that question when it's who you are? And so I um, 
I received a diagnosis. My husband and myself received a diagnosis on the same day. Wow. And so um, the entire household is autistic. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my husband and son barely say anything. And then my daughter and I, we make up for that. Sounds <laughs> <So we, laughs> a bit like our house, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. So we, we fill the space because we're very unapologetic very argumentative very militant mm. um but you know I always say that our house is full of a lot of love and a lot of laughter because people yeah. feel like autistic people don't have senses of humor and that we can't show affection and it's just really insulting so our, mm. our house is just full of uh, absolutely full to the brim of laughter and love you... um, and so sorry, sorry what we can say do you find sometimes Melissa that because your husband and son are quite quiet and barely say anything and your daughter and you are quite loud and outgoing and unapologetic as you put it that there are times in your household where the the you 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 clash with one another because you're different in that in that way or do you find that actually like one sort of calms the other down and one brings sort of that energy out of the other the person who's quite quiet Oh my gosh, I like, I don't know when we don't clash in my house. Really? So, yeah, my husband and son never clash. No. They're re really, really boring, never clash. <laughs> um, my daughter and I, we clash all the time. And then my daughter clashes with my son. She never clashes with her dad because her dad is like, her, she's just in awe of her dad. Yeah. So she gets away with a lot with her dad. Mm -hmm. Um. I clash with my son. He doesn't clash with me. My son just keeps his head down. I think he's just trying to get to 18 so we can, <laughs> so we can move away for university. I think that's his, his master plan. Um, but yeah, we, we are very, um, I don't think we're, we're not loud in an aggressive way or an antisocial way, but we're like, no. we clash. Yeah. Mm, because we're so, mm. We're so different and our approach is so different. Um, yeah. Our approach to parenting, um, our children's approaches to being parented. So yeah. it's con it's constant in our house. Mm. Um, but there's so much laughter at the same time. Yeah. Like it's quickly forgiven and forgotten as well at the same time, would you say? Or... Oh, no, me and my daughter hold a grudge. Oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah we hold a grudge. We hold a grudge. Uh, we just store it. We just store it for the right time. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, it is. It's quickly forgotten because we do, we do love each other. And um, as a mum, I tell them all the time. And I think one of the things I do really well that the generation before us were re really bad at is when I'm wrong, I do apologise to my children. Mm. And I think, I think it helps them to see that you know. I, mum's just human and she's just really trying her best and but she's flawed as well yeah. and I think that that helps a lot um that I'm willing to apologize do you feel that um in terms of you know your your neurodiverse household that there's times where you're sort of you're not necessarily clashing because of your your personalities but there are times where your sort of autism conflicts with the sort of way that other people experience you know the rest of your your autistic family experience the world 
yeah, so my my husband and myself, the way we communicate is very different. And I think our understanding of language can be different sometimes as well. And I think that causes the most bickering in our household between my husband and myself, um, mm. that miscommunication. So that can mm. be really frustrating for me because I'm convinced I'm convinced I'm always right. Yes. And um, even then when I see where the mistakes happened and I try to kind of explain that, I think sometimes my husband doesn't understand. There's that confusion of what we both meant. So, yeah, that, that does cause, I'd say, the most bickering. Um, because, you know, an autistic person, you know, it, to me it's a neurodisability but we're, and we all have the same diagnosis but we're all individuals mm. and so um just because we're all autistic doesn't mean we're all gonna um work in unison and all kind of i don't know almost like i'm sorry i'm into to marvel and it's almost like um cerebra and x-men and you know we're not all connected to one brain yeah. and yeah kind of perform in the same way we're all yeah. individuals um so yeah uh, yeah, we, 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 there is so much clashing and it just makes me laugh just thinking about it. And I think that that's something that a lot of people who don't know people with neurodiversity have this idea that, um, you know, you, you see those list of traits that people say are, are autistic and they, they say it's, um, you know, difficulty in communication and difficulty with social situations and not making eye contact and not knowing how to talk to people and you think it's it this isn't a series of of robots and that, that you can plug them all into one another and they'll be they'll be fine if you put them all in a room together to talk to each other because because they're the same yeah but actually I think that's the reason why I I actually I like the phrase neurodiverse because it reflects that it's it's diversity within the community of autistic people as well as diversity within the wider you know neurological experience and i think as well it's not just neurodiverse people that that the, the society has this view of disabled people in general that you know oh, all disabled people must be the same you know um there's i get a lot of sweeping generalizations well you know um they, you must be sad or you know like all this kind of general like sweeping generalizations that you're like just because you met somebody who was sad because they can't walk doesn't mean that i'm sad because i can't walk and and i think society as a whole has a tendency to go oh well they almost feel like this or they almost struggle with this when actually it's you know cerebral palsy and i know that alice's visual impairment is very different depending on the person who has that um, impairment themselves. You know, cerebral palsy is a huge piece. You can, you know, sometimes have difficulty communicating. You can somehow times have difficulty, uh, you know, with mobility. It's not one size fits all. And I, that's, I think, something that I wish society as a whole could see about the disability and the neurodiverse community. Because if they realise that, I think it would open up a whole... Um, it, it would solve a lot of problems, I think, in people's I, I, understanding. I think as well, it's just it's just really insulting to just yeah. make that mm -hmm. assumption that because we've yeah. all got the diagnosis, we're all exactly 
um, the same because, I mean, I use the term neurotypical. And so it, that's like that's me then arguing that all neurotypicals are exactly the same. They think mm -hmm. the same. Mm -hmm. You know, their views on life are the same. And people would laugh at that and say, that's absolutely absurd. And so yeah. to think that, you know, me as a household or like the wider autism community all think and act the same, it's just, it just makes no sense to me whatsoever. And I think one of the things as well that, that I always find really interesting when speaking with and interacting with people who don't have you know family members or or loved ones or or an understanding of sort of i mean diversity in general um <laughs> when when people they'll, they'll they'll make a comment and be like oh well that must be because of their autism and you sort of like so i've uh, been in i work for a charity that um supports people with um autism learning difficulties, neurodiversities. Um, and I'm working with a uh, young person at the moment who's having some difficulty engaging in school. And their teacher has, has basically said, oh, well, they're, they're not getting on with the other kids at school because, um, because of their autism. And actually, from speaking to the child the reason they're not getting on with the other kids at school is because the other kids at school are bullying them and it's like it's got nothing to do with their it's autism just, no. it's because the kids that they go to school with are shits that's all it is <laughs> and either, and, yeah and there's quite oh you didn't tell me we you didn't tell me we could swear on here <laughs> yeah oh yeah yeah that that makes me feel a lot better as well okay <laughs> sorry, carry on yeah um and there is quite often a and I think I've experienced it as well. As you know, people have said to, things to me before be are working under the assumption that like, oh, well, you, you can't do that because you can't see. And I'm like, I mean, no, I, I, I don't do that because I'm, you know, I don't climb mountains, not because I can't see. I don't climb mountains because I'm lazy. Don't want to. Yeah. Exactly. I want to stay inside. It's it's, I mean, and that, that is the one thing that if anybody tells me I can't do something, then I am hell bent on showing them. Yes, I can. And I can probably do it twice as good as you can. Because um, mm. nobody should, I, I hate it when people make assumptions about me. Um, it's purely... just a sweeping generalisation, yeah. isn't it? Exactly yeah. As you were talking about before. And, and and you sort of you think there is a part of me sometimes that that I get really because obviously there there is a lot of overlap I think in the experience of minorities and people being discriminated against and a lot of that comes from people just making generalizations and you like you look around on Twitter and on the internet and you see people um, you know getting very and and in in mainstream media, you know, people getting very angry about caricatures and yeah. um, stuff of people from, you know, lo lots of people will be screaming about stuff when they think it's it's misogynistic uh, or um, I think probably to a lesser extent racist. And you sort of sit there sometimes and go... But we're still okay with making these huge sweeping generalizations about disabled people in mainstream media, and people don't bat an eyelid. They don't bat that. This is what always winds me up a little bit. You know, people are very quick to go, "Oh, hang on, that's not right. You can't say that about you can't say that about this minority and this minority." But as soon as it comes to disabled people, everybody just shuts up. 
they don't or if and if they don't shut up it's more oh you can't pick on the disabled people you can't just i feel like there is there's an allyship out there where people will are very happy to call out when they see like racism or they see xenophobia uh, or you know religious prejudice things like that but then people are not very good at being on the outside of the disabled community and going uh excuse me you're not you shouldn't be saying that no but i think for me like as a black woman i i don't see enough people calling out racism either so it's like so for me um because there is racism in the disability communities as well and that's one of the Mm. things i always try and highlight that just because just because the the disabled community or the autism community is more united it doesn't mean that the same people aren't there with the same prejudices and the same lived Mm. experiences of making assumption on people's you know gender or um their religion or Mm. their race so for me for me as a as a black woman it's harder for me to get a diagnosis yeah um for 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 my black children luckily although it felt like forever for me and i i felt like oh gosh i failed my kids because they got a diagnosis at four and six actually that's pretty young Mm. and um so for me i felt um extreme guilt about them receiving a diagnosis at four and six now i understand more, more about the state of the system and how long it takes for diagnosis i realize how fortunate i was for them to receive the diagnosis at such a young age because because of things like the unconscious bias and the microaggressions that black children face at school and you know face within the within the departments that diagnose children actually it it takes longer for black people and people of color to receive diagnosis because autism is seen as something that um white people have you know white people are autistic white boys are autistic and now we're starting to realize that actually everybody and anybody can be autistic because i say i think they say um i think they said something like there's over 700,000 people in the uk that are autistic but i i would say that's a drop in the ocean i'd say there's a lot more people that are I think that's I a, a conservative view of it. The stat, the stat that I know is one in seven people are on the spectrum. Okay, because we did something recently in Sheffield. The council had some stats back, and I think they said that it was over like three percent, almost four mm. percent of mm. of the city of Sheffield, and that wasn't getting information from everybody. No. no. So. More and more people are thankfully being diagnosed because people are understanding um, autism better. But it's still the same people who are in charge of diagnosis and it's still the same structures within yeah. um, the schools and the healthcare systems, which means that that racism that they acknowledge is there is still there, yeah. which means people who look like me and my children are less likely to um receive diagnosis or even be considered as being autistic yeah i know that um unfortunately for many young black boys who have adhd um there is just people just assume they're badly behaved kids 
Exactly. And, and they there's an assumption that um, there's difficulties at home or it's, yeah. it's behaviours at home or it's culture. Yeah. And so then it means that child continues to struggle Absolutely. And, and continue to not get that support that they Absolutely. need. Absolutely. And, and then so, that leads to that leads to a lot of things like they talk about the school to uh, prison pipeline. Yep, for, that's what for I was Black just Boy. thinking about. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so for me, auto- racism isn't shouted out enough and acknowledged enough. And then autism and autistic people um, also suffer from you know, those ableist comments. Mm. So for me, it's like a double-edged sword. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And I think a big part of the problem is the lack of diversity within the kind of assessment and diagnosis system. Um, You know, the thing I, as someone who works in sort of the social care system, I am embarrassed to be a middle-class white person turning up at a mosque or something like that to talk about how I can help you because Mm. I don't know anything about your cultural experience I may I'm not neurodiverse I I have an understanding of the support system and how those processes work and I'm trained to help people to kind of unpick stuff and work through stuff in a sort of disabled friendly fashion but everybody's experiences are informed by their entire identity not just one element of it and you know it's I personally think it's quite offensive for the way you see what are in terms of social care it is so often middle-class middle-aged white women and in diagnostics it's older white men who are the ones holding the strings and and standing in the gateway to services and support. And it shouldn't Mm. be that way because we don't understand the the experiences and and the depth and breadth of how those experiences intertwine. Mm. And I think, unfortunately, what I've found within within the sphere of autism is, you're right, there are those white gatekeepers and there's an unwillingness on their part to own their privilege and there's an unwillingness yeah. on their part to even um, support people of colour to get into positions where they can start um, also being um, being able to diagnose people or to be able yeah. to educate around religion and culture from the autism perspective so mm-hmm. I do a lot of training and um, it took off quite a lot actually during the pandemic because you could do it over zoom which meant mm-hmm. I could reach a lot of people world- worldwide and I did talk about like I did presentations around um, autism from the black perspective because you have to take into account race as mm-hmm. well you know, when they say, when people say they don't see colour or we're all equal, actually, no, we're not. We were talking and about so, that last week, weren't we, Alice? Yeah, people, no. People say, you don't see, it's just a ridiculous, it's like when people it's, say, it's really I don't see, I don't see your disability. Well, why not? Because you should. It's, like, it's part, it's, it's hugely dismissive of yeah. a vital Absolutely. aspect of a person's identity. And Absolutely. And the problem with the kind of, you know that having those these white gatekeepers who don't 
understand those experiences that actually then the people of color and the you know people from BAME communities and stuff that I'm talking to think you don't understand me why should I work with you and so then it that reflects in our service users and I'm sitting there looking at you know a room full of people who I'm supposed to be supporting and 29 out of 30 of them are white and it's because I I don't understand their experience and so my mm. support is not going to be appropriate and mm. that's why you know that it then feeds into when people look at these stats of going well who's who who who's autistic but it's actually if you can't if you can't get through the diagnostic um sort of system and then you can't access the support system because there are barriers or it's not appropriate for you then you just get just get lost mm. and that's where when people that's when people do end up not being able to engage in education or not being able to get into work and it that and it's people like that who then have to end up on benefits or into the prison system because mm. they just because the the system has failed them in the first place it's got nothing to do with them yeah yeah and i do have like i do have some allies around me who have kind of supported me to be more vocal about stuff like that but there's not there's not been enough allies in the autism no. community or further afield and i think you know sometimes people saying we're in it together and talking about the unity within the community it can be quite to me it, it that's not always been my experience yeah um so i'm really really grateful for the the allies that i do have that constantly try and um, promote what I do or when they do get a seat at that metaphorical table they they say well actually there's nobody here of color or mm. you know or oh you know we're only looking at we're looking at it through a white lens you know wh what are we doing to to kind of address that and 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 that's what people need to be doing to yeah. to be to be allies I think it's quite interesting, Melissa, that you, you, you said earlier on that, you know, the, the disability community and how um, as a wider as a wider community, we, we to to you, we sort of feel a bit united. Um, but actually, in actual fact, I can tell you as a member of the disability community that there is a lot of what I call disability top trumps. Well, I'm more disabled than you are. And well, mm. do you suffer with this? Because I suffer <laughs> with this and it's 10 times worse because you don't, and you don't know what it's like. There is a lot of that. There is a mm. lot of sort of that everybody's nicey nicey from the majority of the time and yes, can support one another, but there are little pockets now and again that you, I don't know whether you've come across it, Alice. People, people just have their own agenda. You know, yeah. it's the, the thing we've talked about um, with, um, I believe when we, we did the um, Order of Lord episode for mm. our Pride Month series with Daisy, how how often communities just, yeah, fight fight for their thing. And that mm. so often means that intersectional people either get sidelined or they have to prioritise part of their, you know, part, what, what is part of their identity rather than recognising their identity as a whole and i think that that is part of the reason why there isn't more sort of there aren't more people doing 
the ally work that you were talking about, Melissa, of saying, well, there isn't that, you know, I have a space at the table, but there's nobody from the black community involved in this. Things yeah. like that, because because they're, people they're go, so but busy I, I've got, for, yeah, yeah, they're focusing so busy on their fighting thing. for them. That yeah. by the time they get to the table, they're exhausted and they're like, I'm not shifting for nobody. <laughs> yeah, you can't have my seat. I'm not making yeah. space for a black person. That might mean I lose my spot. And it's yeah, not looking we'll at that kind to of... add that we're not all like that either. <laughs> like, we're not all <laughs> yeah, out for no. ourselves. But um, well, there is, there is elements it, of it. Yeah, there, there are elements of it. And I, I see it a lot. Um, I mean, Twitter is... For an autistic person, and and for I think for a lot of disabled people, especially who are isolated, things like you know social media, mm. especially Twitter, is a really nice space for us to feel like we're part of something. But yeah. equally, Twitter is a horrible space because <laughs> yeah, Twitter was a cesspit. <laughs> yeah, it's just you know it's a person behind a keyboard, and you don't know what their agenda is. And some people are really really cruel, you know. Yeah. And so it's 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 another thing where it's like a double-edged sword Twitter but yeah I you know you can find some amazing allies there and some people who really want to learn and do better but then you can you can meet some people who really do they they have their opinion and they're not willing to yeah to consider it and I think for me as well one of the problems is there is you know one of one of the ways you get your diagnosis your diagnosis for autism is you have to have there's an element of rigidity of thought Mm -hmm. to be autistic and so some people will then use that as an excuse to say well I have rigidity of thought and that's why it's hard for me to to look at it differently and then I have to say no you're just actually being racist (laughs) you 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 really are just being racist you're actually being a bit of a dick yeah (laughs) yeah you're being you're being a dick yeah Yeah. there is there is a difference between going I find it really hard to conceptualize a new and different idea because I have rigidity of thought versus I recognize that your opinion and experience might be different from mine I don't understand it but I can see that that yeah. it exists mm. those are different yeah. things just because yeah. you know i i don't profess to understand your experience as a black autistic person because i am a white blind person mm. but it doesn't mean that i can't wreck you know i can't because, be yeah. on your side no because i mean that's that's the thing both me and you Alice, have empathy towards other people we're not dicks who go oh well i don't understand <laughs> that so therefore you you must be wrong because i don't understand it we have empathy and we practice that like on you know daily basis because we are not assholes at the end of the day and i will say you know one of the things about that that it is it like it is a privilege in a way to have that emotional capacity to yeah. be able to do that you know we've been lucky that we've been brought up in families and lived in you know experienced the school system and and society to in a way that has allowed us to develop those kind of feelings and sort of understandings I do think that you know I'm not forgiving people for being racist but I do think that when you you know, if you grow up in a shitty household where people tell, I spend the whole time going, oh, well, I can't work because there's immigrants taking all the jobs. 
then you're not going to grow up to be an adult who recognizes that actually people immigrate to immigrate emigrate to this country immigrate to this country because actually we're a very like we're a very lucky country in terms of the opportunities and in terms of a fucking free healthcare service and a good benefits that you know despite all of the problems Hmm. um that there are at the moment you know that and instead of some people just are just it makes me sad for them that they weren't brought up in a household where Hmm. they were taught emotional resilience and empathy Hmm. yeah i do have i do have empathy um for people like that but then equally it's like fuck you i'm tired yes do you know what i mean and it's weird because especially when i become a mom then it's like i'm really protective of my kids and you know you have people like that who you know feel like they can like if my son for instance was stimming in public Mm. because my son's getting really tall now yeah you know um you know when they get to that age where they're really tall and skinny and they're bending over because they're that tall he's at that age now <laughs> and it's like actually he wouldn't be able to stim in public because people wouldn't look at him and think oh maybe he's disabled maybe he needs support people, people would, would see him, him and be being, afraid yeah they'd be afraid and saying he's being aggressive and police yeah. could get involved and then it could yeah. go really wrong really quickly mm. and so it's like i, I can't show compassion for you no. because you're going to hurt my baby so it's it's really it's really hard as a person who I think I I think I have a lot of empathy if anything too much and I find that exhausting because people it's almost like I allow people to kind of metaphorically plug into me and drain me because I want to help everybody I want to do everything but then you know I'm learning um I'm learning to kind of get a tougher shell because mm. I've my job first and foremost is to protect my children from being harmed and hindered. So even mm. during lockdown, where autistic people we could go out as many times as we wanted, you know, mm. we only went out still for like the hour, like neurotypicals yeah. were allowed to do. Because I I could see that you know that entitled white person coming to ask well you know you've been out twice or yeah you know, I've been watching the window because I've got nothing else yeah, to do because I've got nothing yeah. else to do and I you know I didn't want my I didn't want my children to be harmed yeah and that's no. not just physically it's that emotional um yeah. energy as well that goes into the that 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 racism I I couldn't cope with that yeah. um so it, it's it, it's it's difficult being it's difficult being black and autistic in a country that is racist Mm. and it's difficult being an autistic woman in a misogynistic culture as well because it is Mm. a very misogynistic culture so for us um like i said like so the the concept of autism it's very eurocentric it was very you know white male middle class um that's how it was developed and that that was the cohort of of individuals who they developed it around and so Mm -hmm. 
what I've what I've observed is now more white women and people who identify as being women they're now receiving diagnoses and 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 rightfully so but then I think I think what happens in a country like this is then they 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 feel like they've ticked a box and said well, yeah we're diagnosing more we're diagnosing more men and women you know yeah. um equality yeah. we've done it we've done it guys and it's like well we've actually what about it. the yeah we've yeah. cracked it and it's like wait what about the people of color you know because actually we're still not being diagnosed and we're still being misdiagnosed and you're still having those assumptions on us and i think it's that's what people don't when you say that we live in a racist country there are lots of people out there who will go we're not a racist country but it's things like or that go, no, re- they won't go we're not a racist country. they'll go but i'm not racist they won't go we're yeah. not a racist country they'll go i'm not but i'm not Mm. And it, but it's things like when you look at you look at the marches and the vigils and the fuss that people made when Sarah Everard died. That was a tragedy. But mm. young women of colour have been disappearing and being murdered by their partners and murdered by stalkers for, I mean, as long as people have been murdering people. And people, <laughs> where, where's where's the marches for? And this is awful that I'm going to say this, but I'm going to hold my hands up to it. I can remember reading an article when the Sarah Everard case was kind of at its height. And there was a woman who spoke about her young daughter, who was a woman of colour, who had been, who had gone missing. And it turned out she had been murdered by some a former partner who was stalking her. And I can't remember the person's name. And I remember, I remember enough that I was shocked that that people were making a big deal about Sarah Everard, and I remember Sarah's name. And it's yeah. that's that's just indicative of the national British approach is. Mm. Oh, but then people for- will make an excuse, and they'll say, "Well, it's because she was killed by a police officer, and that's why." And and you know, the police are there to protect us, and and then all of a sudden, people start to look at the police and saying, "Well, actually, some of them won't be decent people." Mm. But as black people, when we say that, it's like, "Oh, no, 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 that's not true." You know, um, you'll only be um, accosted by the police if you've done something wrong. You'll only be stopped and searched if you've done something wrong. But then this thing, this horrible, atrocious thing happened to somebody, and all of a sudden, they started to say, "Well." Maybe not all police officers yeah. are good people. Yeah. yeah. You know. It was only on and, the news yesterday, wasn't it? That like, wasn't it one in seven policemen or police, police officers shouldn't have got past the yeah, I heard that. vetting stage? And you're like, yeah. what? What? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But all it's, right. that, you know, those sorts of it, it, investigations are coming out almost as a, a direct mm. um sort of result of it's like Sarah a knee-jerk reaction isn't it a knee-jerk when, oh we better well, do something yeah when mm. and you you just think that it's because she was a young pretty white woman yeah she's just and it's just it's i don't understand how people don't see that that staring them in the face like how do they not look at the news and see all these you know awful things that we're hearing about that's happening to children and women how do you not look and go, how come all I'm seeing is white faces? Mm. No, um, it's weird because I've always said to my husband that the the, the tsunami that happened in Thailand, mm. um, it affected us all so much because a lot of white people were killed. 
you know, they were over there yeah. on their holiday. Yeah, on the holidays, yeah. And and they were killed. And so people only seem to, not all people, but a lot of people can only empathise when it looks like somebody who could be in their family or their yeah, child. It's relatable to them. It's, it's relatable. relatable you know. Relatable to them because it's a white family. Exactly. And yeah. so all of a sudden, you know, um, then it matters. And then all of a sudden people band together and say, we need to address this. Something needs yeah. to change. And, you know, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, this country is predominantly white. Mm -hmm. And the laws are made by white people. Mm -hmm. um, the healthcare system is devised and managed by white people the police system, the school system. And so then what it means is they're only looking out for and creating rules for people who they identify with, the people who they find relatable. Yeah. And so that doesn't look like me or my children. So, you know, what does that do to the mental health of black people and people of colour in this, in this country? What does it mean, you know, for that that Asian child who's struggling in school mm. um, because they're autistic, but at school aren't even considering it? They're saying, well, mum and dad, are, the English is their second language, so that must be the problem. Yeah. It's a cultural thing because they're Muslim. And so, you know, I, I wasn't diagnosed, but I understand why I wasn't diagnosed. Mm. Because when I was younger... You know, when I was younger, they, the, the, the understanding of autism wasn't what it is now. And the parameters for receiving a diagnosis were really tight. So I wouldn't have received a diagnosis because I um, could function and I could communicate and I could interact with people because I could mask. And so I understand mm -hmm. as, as bittersweet and as painful as it is. I understand why I didn't receive a diagnosis, but we understand autism a lot better now. And we're still not receiving the diagnoses. Yeah. So why aren't we? Yeah. What's what's the there's there's no excuse. It's just people no. failing, people fucking up. Yeah. Each and every day. And and thankfully there are allies who, you know, if there's a festival going on in Sheffield like the Festival of Debate in Sheffield have been amazing allies to me from day one. So, and, and um, you know, I had a, a friend who worked at Sheffield Health Watch at the time and they were working together. This was about four years ago and um, they were able to secure um, the writer, the author of the Neurotribes book, Steve Silberman. And, you know, he came to Sheffield for me to sit down and have a conversation with him in front of an audience. Yeah. And so for me as an autistic person who my, a lot of my concept and empathy around autism was reading his book, I was able to sit down and have a two hour conversation with this man in front of an audience. That was amazing. Yeah, um, you know, I've been I've been able to, um, you know, there's a there's a charity in Sheffield called not in Sheffield, in London, called A Second Voice, and it's run by a black woman. And it's it supports, like, black autistic people and autistic people of colour as a whole. And she saw some of the things I was doing, and she's based in London. But she was supporting me in Sheffield because she understood 
like my voice wasn't being heard Mm -hmm. and so it's about you know I've been really lucky to have allies that have gotten me to where I am and it's not because I don't work fucking hard put in a lot of effort yeah. and get very little out of it yeah even on even on twitter there's people who've gone onto twitter after me talking about autism and they've got a blue tick now mm. and tens of thousands of followers and i will talk about really really important things around autism and race and i won't even get a like because actually for that autistic person who's reading it it doesn't relate to them so they're yeah. not interested in it. Do you see mm. what I mean? And yeah, so I see what you it's mean. like you put in three times as much work and you, you don't even get a quarter of the reward. And I personally I I can't understand that disengage that, that sort of disconnect for people who who only see differences like you know I when I look at a person and I look at their story I I can't help but be drawn to the similarities I'm always conscious of my privilege but I think you know speaking to you Melissa I am hearing a woman speak and of course your identity is more than just your gender but I I recognise that you're you know you're a woman and you're a disabled woman which I am also. But so there is that level of connection, isn't there, yeah. for and both so, me and you? Yeah. But listening to you talk about the black autistic experience, that's two things I have. I do not have a kind of concept of or or share. But I'm still engaged and interested yeah. and think this is worth listening to this is yeah, worth exactly. talking about and you know it's interesting to to hear people's experiences and and discuss things and but I, but I think as well that that also for us Alice it makes us good podcast hosts because we are prepared to sit and listen to other people's stories and give you space to talk about what you want mm. to talk about I find what you've got to say Melissa very engaging I'm, t- I'm soaking it all in it's it's in some respects it's an eye-opener um but it you know and I often find I I love finding out about different people from different backgrounds and it doesn't scare me that I'm Mm. going to sit and talk to somebody who is is different in some way for me because to to me it's like well it's a it's a learning it's the learning experience isn't it and you know and within that within our conversations we can find common ground and actually discover you know we've got connections that that make these conversations worthwhile and and valuable it's um and i think from, I, I, sorry i think from sorry that's an autistic thing with something pops no, in your head you've got to get it out before yeah, you forget of course. <laughs> i think for me as well i kind of i always talk as well about being in a place of privilege because yes. i've been able to go to university and get a degree I've been able to go back to university and get like postgraduate qualifications Mm. in autism um I know that I'm articulate I know I can stand up and give a presentation so I know that I'm I'm in a much better position than a lot of people of color are um so I I even understand my privilege so Mm. um and I always kind of try and explain that I'm not 
I'm talking from my lived experience and from the people who I talk to, but I, I don't have all the answers. And, and so, yeah, you're right. When I'm, when I interact with people, I, I immediately understand the privilege I've got. And I immediately want to learn and hear about what their lived experience is because that enriches me as an individual. Mm. But yeah, exactly. There is nothing wrong with being inquisitive around other people and I think it's it can only be a good thing that you are willing to ask questions and listen to so long as you're willing to listen to the answers and not sort of bombard bombard and bombard and mm. you are prepared to listen to what that person's got to say there is no wrong with being inquisitive and it can only make you a better person and if you are vulnerable enough to say look I don't know about this can you tell me about xyz i think that is quite endearing in a way when people you know when people come to me and say look i don't know about this i'm going to hold my hands up i don't know um can you explain it to me i am more than happy if they do it politely and considered and don't just go what's up with you then kind of Mm. in the street when it's a polite considered request yeah i'm working on this and i have no clue and it goes giving me your name it goes back to what we were talking about with yeah. assumptions is actually yeah. instead of looking at a person and going, well, because you are X, Y, or Z, I assume that you must be like this. Mm. Actually, you know, being open and open-minded means that you don't look at a person and, and decide that you look at, you meet a person and you go, tell me about you and your experience. Yeah. Before Absolutely. making assumptions. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, obviously one of the reasons that we we brought you on today was to to talk about the the difference between uh, kind of and and the fight that, that autistic women go through to get the diagnoses that they need to be able to access support and things like that. Um, and that's and and how how disproportionate those diagnoses for women and women of color is versus you know little white boys that obviously having you know raising awareness of the difficulties that women and women of color experience with trying to get a a diagnosis as part of that national autistic society campaign that you're you've been a part of um melissa is it it helps hopefully helps people sort of challenge their their assumptions about well this is what autism looks like because actually Mm. that you know and it's it's difficult when it comes to you know i'm sure it's very difficult for people doing diagnoses to go well this is autism this isn't autism um but you know that's what they're paid for that's what that's that's their jobs and yeah i think i think that's why you know doing campaigns and and making making a fuss basically making sure people are are aware and and the best thing that you can do is put the information out there unfortunately Mm. people may choose not to engage with it but um yeah um i was i was part of the national autistic society steering group um looking at a campaign that they wanted to do around um women and non-binary people receiving late diagnoses of autism and and what effects that has on them and has had on them and um you know we had like varying opinions and um we 
we kind of we we saw it was it, we we saw that it was an important thing to do um and you know they asked me to be a part of the the six individuals who would be featured because as well as those six people autistic um women and non-binary people could also send in a picture of themselves and write their story and that will be um that will be visible on the internet but then they also wanted six six people to feature and as part of that feature they had a photographer come to their home um and you know they kind of helped you to um set the hope set the it was in i think it was supposed to be in your living room and you were supposed to have things around you that kind of represented you as a person mm-hmm. um and so they wanted to do that with me um now i'm the i'm a massive marvel fan and so to me if i'm trying to rep if i want to if i want things around me to represent me i have to be able to show that and mm-hmm. we can't show marvel things because it's all copyrighted yeah yeah so i i um again used my power that i'm starting to learn i have and i was like well i have an idea and i says <laughs> well i want to go to one of the smaller independent cinemas in sheffield and i want to be able to sit in an empty um theater and that kind of represents me watching marvel Mm. and watching those movies that i love because i couldn't wear the t-shirt i couldn't have the funkos around me or Mm. posters or anything so i says well i want to be able to do that um and i i did what i always do i started to research and i reached out to cinemas and the curzon cinema in sheffield said yep come come down and so um we went down with um, a photographer, with assistants, and um, there was a lot of people there just for me. Amazing. And we had we had a theatre where they, you know, we we did a, a photo shoot mm. to find to to have a picture that represented me as an individual. Um, mm. And um, I really enjoyed it. And as part of that, I did um, an interview as well to tell my story, to explain when I received my diagnosis and to talk about I felt growing up, how I felt like I I didn't fit in and felt really lonely in a room full of family because something just didn't feel right about me. Mm. And I always felt like an observer in my family. I always felt like I was on the outside looking in. And a lot of autistic people say that when, because I still, my children still go to ACT and we hear children saying that all the time when, you know, when we're in the parents room and mm. we have these new parents coming in and their children say things like they feel like an alien or they feel like they're talking a different language. And and I always felt like I was on the outside looking in at my family. Um, and so I was able to just kind of share my story. And 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 talk about like, the struggles that I've had but also the things that I love and the things that I now embrace because I've, I don't just know I'm autistic. I've accepted that I'm autistic and that's two very different things. And so um, I've accepted that I'm autistic. And so I now take great pleasure in sitting for an entire day when I've got a day off and watching a Marvel movie I've seen a hundred times already but I need to sit and watch it again because I've had a stressful week. Mm. And so whereas before 
you know, if you're gonna go on, if you if you're gonna watch like ten Marvel movies back to back, and you've done it fifty times already, it feels wrong, and it feels like a, a really almost sordid secret, a like a dirty like, secret. Yeah, it's a dirty secret because you're a grown ass woman. You know, and you've got bills yeah. to pay and you've got yeah. responsibility and you're taking so much pleasure in watching superheroes. So it's not even a documentary, you know, and it's not it's not a it's not a foreign movie with subtitles that kind of, you know, yeah. makes you feel really educated and bougie. Yeah. It's like it's like superheroes and a lot of CGI. And but now as an autistic person I totally I've gotten to the point where I want to be happy. Mm. And so I accept that. And I accept that things like Marvel and and Disney Plus and Star Wars makes me really happy. Yeah. You know, having a new series of Game of Thrones recently come out, that made me really happy. <laughs> be very careful. I am, <laughs> I am on, my, I'm on the edge for potential spoilers for Game of Thrones. Be very yeah, careful. We have to keep that mouth closed. No, do no, you know something? I'm a per I do not spoil. I'm not a spoiler person because I've, it's so painful. Yeah. When somebody spoils something. Yeah. So no. When you get like two pages from the end of a book and they go, oh, that, he dies in the end. You're like, Thanks, cheer, thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I see so, no. the the internet is not a safe place for me because no, I don't. Not. I've I've not watched Game of Thrones. I've read the books, so uh, oh, I so you've yep. not seen the you've not seen nope. the series. <gasps> nope. So I started watching the series and was like, I really like this. I'm going to read the books. I started reading the books. And oh went, no! I went. <laughs> This series is fucking terrible compared to the book. And so <laughs> dived into the books completely. I had, I think I got about halfway through the second season. I was just like, no, the books are so much better. Yeah. And I've been stuck waiting for the next one. And in theory, the one after that, like, because I think uh, we're there's two more books to come before they like get to Man the end alive. of the TV show. He knows oh, how to talk about dragons, doesn't he? Or he, what? He... He's, he's gonna very... he's gonna fucking die before he finishes them. Exactly. I was gonna say he's a very old man. Now he's, he's a very overweight can... old man. He says he there's got... two people who knows the ending. So okay. even if he passes away, there are people who knows how. Do he we wants know the health of these end. two people? Like... No, we don't. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> gonna write it in the same way like and obviously the, i know i know i, know I read no happened... I, I what i reckon has happened is he has got a manuscript somewhere locked away just in case he dies before the books oh, you come see, out i don't i don't believe that because from what i know about um what i know about him i think if he had those books he would be releasing them so that he could make his money yeah possibly that that man likes his money. Well, if he's not got the full manuscripts, he will at least have some. He knows. Notes. He knows what's ha what's going to happen because he told the writers of the TV Game show. He was like, he was like, these are the um, like plot points you need to hit to get to yes. the end. Um, yes. And so that's what they've done. But he has but not can, written the can book. I, can I say something? And this isn't a spoiler because you would have already heard this. I think going by seasons seven and eight, I think 
they did such a shambolic mm-hmm. thing with those series that he may just rip up what he's done and said, you know what? Everybody I know I know I've given them those plot points, but fuck it. They've fucked <laughs> it up completely, so I need to do it differently. Yeah. So um but no, I would I would genuinely recommend you watching it because what everybody I think says everybody if you're says... waiting for the books yeah you're never gonna I think Melissa's right mean, Alice the only the only thing I would say though is like it took him 25 years to write the first five yeah well, so like and it's how old not is he, how old is he now oh he's oh. got to be he's got to be in his if not if not in his late 70s that guy's in his 80s I'll tell you, I'm fucking sitting on the internet. I'll Google it. <laughs> I will no, I'm Google doing it. it now. How old is? Um, Please hold, G- listeners. <laughs> is it G R R Martin? Martin. Yeah. Right. I'm see how old. Um, George R R Martin. Yeah. George R R Martin. He's seventy-four. 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 Yeah, and we're not even being ages. Well, you see, all of that money from Game of Thrones, he can afford really good health care. He's not. He's not. He does not look like a healthy person. He's no. Certainly, last time I saw him, he is. He is significantly overweight. Yes. Yeah. Um, And I mean, I mean, people could now argue we're being fat phobic, and that's not. He looks unhealthy, and I think that's very different to being overweight. He's very, very. He's got his his job is sitting at a computer. Yes, like he's got a very that. sedentary job. He, like he doesn't. He looks like he's significantly overweight. <laughs> he's older, and that will obviously be putting a strain on his heart. And it's just basically, George, you're not allowed to come out of your office because Alice is cracking the whip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, happening here. Yes. Do not leave your house. <laughs> You're under house arrest until the book's finished. But he had said how he said how insulting it is because people keep saying to him, you know, you need to get these books out because you're really old. And he's like, people keep saying to me, you know, you're gonna die. Get these books ready. And he's like, I want to live my life. I've yeah. got this money now, and I want to be able to that's live my life. Very true. Yeah. Very and true. I, so, and that's another reason why I'm saying I think you should just watch it. <laughs> You have those purists, we've gone on a tangent now, you've got those purists <laughs> who, because I've not read the books, I bought the book and couldn't get into it, and that was after getting up to season six, and right. there was a big gap, and I thought, let me try and read it. Um, and you had those purists, because I used to have a, I used to have a, um, a podcast on YouTube, where I would, I would took my sister through the seasons. So I took her through every episode. So I, I know not to spoil stuff. Yeah. And we would dissect the episode because I'd seen them all. And then I took her through them. Yeah. And um, one of the, oh God, I've gone on. I can't remember what I was going to say. What, how did I start that a minute ago? Uh, we're talking about purists. Of yeah. The... yeah, purists. And, and a lot of the comments in my YouTube page, they would say, in the book and in the book and I'm like we're not talking about the book we're just focusing on the series so you have those purists who are really you know they're die hard for the book and they're waiting for these books and I think I think the purists may have to accept that the books aren't coming mm. and I mean the news the 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 house of dragons that takes us back to the very beginning yeah yep. and it, it it's been a slow burner I can tell you that but I yeah. found season one of Game of Thrones a slow burner because we're used to binge watching. It's yeah. really foreign concept now for us to mm. watch 
one to episode take your a time week. over things isn't it yeah yeah it, it, it so it, it was a bit of a slow burn but actually it's set up for something incredibly exciting mm. so I think you should I think you should um I, got I think you should I, go through the, I think you should go through the series and have a podcast to discuss the episode. <laughs> She's not having another podcast, not without me. <laughs> I have I have tried uh within the last six months or so I've tried rereading the, I thought you were gonna the say first try reading. to have another podcast you know, without me. No, no, no. In um in like in a sort of a oh that like I wanna reread all of the, the ones that are out in preparation for when the next one comes out ever eventually and because mm. i know all the awful things that are going to happen i'm just really tense the whole time and so yeah. i don't know if i can even reread them which then makes me go oh i don't know if i'll be in touch enough to be able to just pick up the next book so i think it's inevitable i'm gonna have to my husband is has sort of periodically scouts the internet for some audio described versions of um of Game of Thrones because it's not on any of the streaming services with AD. So that is the okay. other problem with the whole situation. Okay. Um, mm. We were talking about autism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the, one of the though, things we've talked about. Can I just say, though, rounding off that bit of the conversation, there is no such thing. I, ha I hate the term guilty pleasure. If it brings you yeah. joy and calms yeah. you down, makes you happy, then... There is nothing That's to true. feel guilty about at all. Yes, but I'm I'm a working class lass. So <laughs> I grew up in a working class family where if you have free time, you need to be working hmm. or you need to be cleaning up or you need to be cleaning yeah. up for your children. Yeah. yeah. And so being working class, it's like you, you, you're not afforded that time, that you're not afforded that respite no. because you're just hustling. And so I'm <laughs> in a position now where... I'm, I'm embracing that I'm autistic. I'm taking time to do things that I enjoy. But yeah. I'm also, I'm constantly arguing with people who I work with at Voluntary Action Sheffield because they're telling me now that because I work, because of the sector I'm in and because I've got a, a degree in postgraduate degree, um, stuff, they're like, Melissa, you're no longer working class, you're now middle class. And I am fighting and <laughs> pushing back because I don't feel middle yeah. class and like they laugh at me because i only now drink i only drink earl grey and they're like <laughs> oh <laughs> they're like melissa that's middle class and i'm like no it's got a lovely fragrance to it <laughs> it also calms me down <laughs> it calms me down sweetie <laughs> there's that con i'm is that for me as well just as an individual there's that constant pushback yeah about what I am, yeah, about what I yeah. can and can't do as as Melissa, um, think... and uh, so yeah, so to sit and watch, to sit and watch something, and sometimes you know watch it again the next day, yeah. but in a different um, order, you know, yeah. like for me, Disney Plus is like the greatest thing that came out of uh, <laughs> lockdown because lockdown was horrible, but it. But it meant all the Marvel stuff was on there. And yeah. they showed it you in like chronological order. They showed it you in timeline order. And so I could just watch it in any order I wanted to. And that gave me so much joy and yeah. pleasure. I, I can't even describe it. And I, think, <coughs> I think it's there's definitely a theme of like self-care 
self-care isn't an indulgence but lots of people Mm. act like it is um you know it just feel like saying just just like just calm down just go and enjoy yourself nobody it's all right nobody's gonna nobody's gonna come and like the fun police aren't gonna come and say excuse me you're a very serious person (laughs) but i do and i do think i do think melissa is also right that there is an element of that being a privilege like to be able to have the time and resources to not do anything for a day is also something that you know we should recognize as we're fortunate that we're able to do that because there are you know single mums out there with chronic fatigue who are like having to do everything Everything. and run after their six kids and for them (laughs) their resting comes when they finally go to bed and get to sleep for six hours before they get up and have to deal with their kids again yeah and I think for me for me um because I've had the times like you know when you you know when I was at school and I worked in um I worked in Meadow Hall which is a big yeah, shopping, shopping complex and it's just it's just there's no natural light so it's all fluorescent lighting so for an autistic person that's painful and then I've worked in factories um whereas I was like a QA auditor because my first degree was in around food technology and so I worked in factories where it was just fluorescent lighting and and so for me as an autistic person now now I can acknowledge that for me, being under fluorescent lighting is like having an ice pick stab me in the back of my eye. But because I masked so well, I didn't even know how much I was struggling with it. Mm-hmm. So as a civil servant, when we had to hot desk and you've got the fluorescent lighting and it's an open plan office where you can't control your temperature, you can't control the lights and there's everybody talking around you. So I can, and for me as an autistic person, I can hear everybody at the same tempo. Yeah. So it doesn't matter where you are in the room, you all sound exactly the same. So I could hear 10 conversations at the Mm. same time. And I didn't know how much I was masking. And, you know, I'd come home and I'd crawl up the stairs because I was that exhausted. Mm. And I had chronic fatigue and, you know, um, depression. And I've had the psoriasis because of stress. And so I've had all those things, um, but I didn't realise I was autistic. And I didn't realise how much I was struggling and I didn't understand because I didn't understand what autism was. Mm. And people like me, you know, you're not autistic. You just have to get on with it. Mm. And I did it for so long that my body just one day said, right, just stop. And I I couldn't get out of bed. And then a year later, I I was diagnosed with having chronic fatigue. But even when I was younger, chronic fatigue, they called it yuppie flu. You know, so again, yeah. it, it's not a working class thing. So I guess yeah. for me as well, it's not just about um, race and disability and gender, but it's also about class. Yeah. Mm. And for yeah. me, being a working class woman, a born and bred Yorkshire last working class, mm. you, you, you're not autistic. You're just you're lazy if you're yeah. not doing something you know if you can't if I can't cope with something and you know I I stay in bed a bit longer or I can't get out of bed you're just being lazy you've got to get on with it Mm -hmm. I think that I I am since doing this podcast actually I've learned 
when to identify my internalized ableism. So there would have been times where before I did this podcast, and I understand now a bit more about internalized ableism, how, you know, on the bad on bad days where I can't actually sort of move very well or I'm not up to doing much I would have thought to myself I have wasted today I've been lazy today whereas now I'm much more I am I wouldn't say well I wouldn't say much more but I am better I'm getting better at recognizing no this you need to rest Lucy your you know your disability has a knock-on effect to your energy and so when you need to rest it's not you being lazy that's you looking after yourself to ensure yeah. that you can still be a, a valued member of society. You're not being lazy. It's not that me staying in bed or, or going to bed early is not me. It's not, it's not through choice. It's through necessity rather than, and I think once you, once you get your head around that, that, you know, for you, you know, for your autism, having a day watching Marvel movies is, is something that helps you. Then that it's, it's sort of, it's self-care and yeah, self-care looks different to everybody yeah, of course it does yeah and you just can't it's wrong for society but it's so deeply ingrained in society for people to be like this is what you should be doing yeah whereas and actually it's, learn, it's learning to stop pushing when things get too hard when you know when you are struggling physically or even mentally to stop pushing and go okay i need to fill my cup back up because if i'm pouring from an empty cup nobody gets anything that mm, yeah. to me was a, a revelation like if i don't look after myself i'm not doing anybody any favors am i you know and i used to when my kids were younger um because i was diagnosed with chronic fatigue before autism and I used to, when my kids were younger, I, I'd say mummy doesn't have any more money in her energy bank. And that's mm. how I used to have to explain it to them because, you know, you, you there's a lot of guilt around having like a really hyperactive child and not being able to keep up with her because you're mm -hmm. tired. Yeah. And you're feeling as well like you're neglecting the quiet son as well mm. uh, because you don't have the energy to interact with him because actually if he comes and asks for something he really wants it so if he wants to have a hug and a chat he really wants that because he's really laid back and asks for very little and so when your children are demanding things from you and you can't support them there's a lot of guilt around mm. that you know um and i think one of the things that i've done is for me is i self-care is more important i do try and look after myself better um because it's it's important to model that behavior i want my yeah. son to understand that you know when he has a partner it's important for them to have that space without the children sometimes mm -hmm. to themselves and it's important for him to pick up the slack as well and support his partner yeah. whatever gender he decides to fall in love with and and the same for my daughter i want my daughter to see that it's okay to be tired as a mum and it's okay to need that time and mm. you know i always say i've got wonder woman syndrome because i always feel like i should be doing it all and and on those days where i try to do everything less gets done and then yeah. i'm exhausted for two more weeks where nothing <laughs> at all gets done as well yeah. so i'm trying a lot of my self-care is i think in, even in my mind i have to justify it as model behavior to support my children because i don't want my daughter masks and I don't want her to be in the physical 
and, and mental and emotional position that I am at 43. I don't yeah. want that for my children. I don't want that for anybody who's who's autistic. That's that's beautifully put, Melissa. Um, yeah, I think that's a, <laughs> a, a good place for us to finally wind up. So, yes, <laughs> Melissa, yeah. thank you so much for joining. Yeah, us. Do you really. Want... It's been really interesting. Thank you, Melissa. Thank Do you, you want to tell our listeners where they can find you on the Internet? Um, on the Internet, I'm known as Miss Taught, which is M.I.S. T-A-U-G-H-T, I think. Mm -hmm. I think that I think that's what I am on 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 Twitter. Um, my my Facebook and Instagram are both private. They're both okay. private pages. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I'm I'm. I have times where I dip in and out of um, Twitter. I'm also. I also run the Sheffield Autism Partnership Network. So if you put that into Twitter as well, we've got a page for yes. that. I recently took part in something for Discovery Plus, the Discovery Plus channel, where we talked about being um, being too black to be autistic. So that was a, a lovely short documentary that I supported them with. And um, I don't know if I can talk about it. there's a documentary coming out in December that you'll see me in as well. And I'm happy to come back and talk to you about that. I just realise I'm going to I'm going to be late for my school pickup, which okay. happens every day. That's every fine. fucking we'll, um... day. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's wind this up because we have not said goodbye to our listeners yet. So. No, we haven't. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much, Melissa, for joining us. Um, Thank you. Don't. Don't forget to follow us online and uh, you can find the links to everything Melissa has talked about today in our show notes. Uh, team, we will see you all next time. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Label Podcast. If you like the show, you can rate, review and subscribe and you can follow us on social media at Labeled Pod. This episode was edited by Adam Hall. Our music was by Maisie Crunden and we'd like to thank the rest of the team involved. <laughs>